This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Scenario and story. Digital cemetery mapping. In-character game text. And unrescuing Mussolini. rattling of dice, the clattering of pencils, the thumping of minis, and the crinkling of Cheetos bags tells us we are entering the noisy yet friendly confines of the gaming hut, and within the gaming hut, Robin has a story to tell us, and perhaps a question to ask us. Robin, what is the gaming hut in uproar about today? So I thought we would explore the question of adventure as blueprint for use in play versus its alternate status as a deliverer of an entertaining reading experience to the GM as they prepare themselves to read it and look at the extent to which those two things go together or are in conflict with one another. So, for example, when you are uh, writing an adventure that has uh, a more complex narrative than your basic here's a bunch of separate encounters separated by geographical space and each encounter is its own scene which you encounter in whatever order you want i.e. the dungeon encounter where basically the connecting tissue between scenes is a literal hallway that you go down or a little passageway or what have you and the more complicated adventure where you might be investigating or negotiating with people or whatever more structured sort of narrative that comes out of that and how you present that second sort of adventure to the reader, the GM, in a way that is either preps them to run the adventure or feels like a fun reading experience. And to what extent adventures serve as closet drama, as reading for people who are never actually going to have time to run that adventure, but want to imagine themselves running an adventure, or wish they were in a gaming group, or just want to read it as a template for what their adventures that they want to make up themselves, either on the fly or to prepare at the table, how those things all go together, because there is a temptation to create something that reads really well on the page and is like a story that you present to the GM while they're reading it, that then becomes difficult for them to replicate, whether because it's hard for them to find the bits of information they need at any given time in the big blocks of text to sort out and pinpoint and describe what's going on, or simply because that format tends to move the adventure writer toward assuming things happening and connecting up to one another in a way that you can't always assume once the narrative hits the protagonist, the PCs at the table. It sounds like you've got your thumb on the scale in this question then, and that you're plumping fairly strongly that the adventure should not succumb to the temptation to tell a story to the GM. Do you think that there is a role for an adventure that can present narrative thread even through something that's a sandbox or something that has a bunch of different possible interpersonal outcomes, uh, don't you find, for example, that when you're writing something, and I'm thinking of my two most recent uh, big Trail of Cthulhu adventures, the Kingsbury Horror and uh, Whitechapel Blackletter, I found that as many different sort of mare's nests and weird phenomena as I put into that, 
it was important to me to keep a thread of narrative visible to the GM, or otherwise they'd just drown in the thing. I mean, I'm not a particularly uh, straightforward writer on the best of circumstances, and when I'm trying to present a, I mean, literally, by definition, a cult adventure, which is full of confusion and horror and weirdness and things that don't make any sense, because that's the whole point of the experience, I find that without a narrative thread that I can sort of come back to and hit as a beat, that everyone's going to be lost, possibly even including me, although I don't think that's as important. Well, I actually see this as not a binary, it should be one or the other, but that you it's an issue that you want to be aware of as you're writing, because you are writing a document that is going to be used in different ways, and that if someone buys your adventure and spends a lot of time reading it and has a heck of a time reading it and it expands their sense of imagination or they are thrilled by it, that is by no means a lesser accomplishment than you have written a very clear, easy-to-run scenario that was then fun at the table, right? The objective of writing is to uh, thrill and entertain and open people's minds and freak them out and all the other different objectives of this sort of writing. And your audience of one sitting there reading it may be, you know, better than an audience of zero. And I think there are actually a lot of people who read adventures for their essentially their closet drama value. And that's not to be discounted. And so the question then is to look for ways to find techniques that allow you to create a happy medium between those things so that on one hand you don't want to have something that's just reads like a flow chart that is a bunch of you know dry descriptors that do not give the gm the imaginative zest that they need to sell it to their players when they're describing things but at the same time you want something that is easy for them to handle when they're playing that's not so brilliantly narrative that it becomes inaccessible to them either in a practical sense or in the broader sense of I don't you know this is so thrillingly written that I don't even know where to start breaking it down and that the notion that any narrative depends on character action you're going to wind up in a box fairly early especially if you have a less straightforward sort of game than you know take all the treasure or kill all the cultists or whatever sort of standard outcome i mean the the reason that i've said before that dungeons and dragons and Call of Cthulhu both work so well as published adventures is because they are uh, constrained in a way that narrative generally isn't. Uh, uh, Dungeons & Dragons, obviously, as you pointed out, are constrained geographically, and Call of Cthulhu adventures are constrained narratively, that there is a a set uh, sort of horror story or mystery course that they follow, and because everyone involved, the GM, the designer, and the players all understand that, it's easier to build that flow in than it is, say, for a traveler adventure, where... Literally, the adventure is, you show up on this planet, and here's all the planet stuff happening. Now, with Ashen Stars, you sort of, you know, go back out and come around the side door and say, well, we're not telling all the possible planet stories, we're telling the space opera procedural planet stories, but for other games, your your, um, your Traveler, your Twilight 2000 games that are more, or even vampire games that are more um, uh, world-based than story-based, it becomes very difficult to write those sorts of adventures. And that level of sort of narrative chaos, I think, is part of what tempts people into, at the very least, trying, as you say, to provide some sort of narrative value to the to the consumer, since there's literally, or the, not literally, but there's almost literally no way to build a, a blueprint for use with something like that. I mean, or cer- certainly there are 
didn't seem to be in the 80s and early 90s when people were writing those adventures. I think that actually, ironically, the OSR has sort of pointed the way towards um, uh, some standard uh, blueprints for sandbox adventures that have looked pretty good and been very interesting. And there are techniques that you can use when you are writing an adventure in order to balance these two things. For example, you do want to have blocks of evocative text that create a mind picture for the GM, whether they are going to read out that text the way that it is written, whether they're going to partially paraphrase it, or whether they're just going to sort of glance down at the block of text and then extemporize based on their memory of having read it several days ago. And one, I think, key trick for the adventure writer is to pick your battles in terms of when you are presenting that sort of evocative text. So that, for example, if you do it at the top of the scene where you are setting the sense of place, the mood, giving these sort of memorable little details that allow the players to hook into what's going on is perhaps a stronger technique than then trying to, once you find yourself describing in detail actions that the players are undertaking as if you are writing a screenplay, that's perhaps a bit of a yellow light that should alert you to the fact that, oh, wait a minute, this bit, because it relies so heavily on my assumptions of what the players are going to do is perhaps not the right moment to highlight in terms of creating that sense of more traditional prose and that perhaps I should find places to do that where the players are just imagining the scene from the from the jump or are sort of in a more contemplative or observational mode so that you make sure that you're not running into that thing. It's like, well, and, and this is what happens to the players. Well, in almost any rule set, you can't control what happens to the players. And pretty soon your really exciting description of action turns out to feel like, you know, the uh, dreaded uh, railroad when it occurs, if it occurs at all. And if it doesn't occur, has the writer accounted for the possible different ways that that scene could have gone? You're certainly correct that that should be a yellow light or perhaps even a red light if you start writing um, uh, lengthy descriptions of, of player action. I think, I think regardless whether it's the fight scene or the investigative scene or anything else, uh, the sort of the direction that I come at it from and I think that succeeds and, and part of what I enjoy when I'm reading a, a, an adventure that I'm not going to run as a closet drama, whether it's a vampire adventure or when you uh, mentioned adventures that expand your mind or, or blow your mind. I remember reading your adventure, Last Chance Brains, for Over the Edge uh, way back in the day and just being, you know, turned upside down and shaken like a rat uh, by by the concepts. And, oh my God, you can do that at the table because it turns out you can and, and things like that. But part of what makes those sorts of adventures interesting to read is the reactions, right? The reactions from NPCs and most importantly, the reactions from the villains or from the antagonists. What is their nefarious plot? And I, I can read that and get instant inspiration for my own games, even if I'm not running uh, over the edge or I'm not running Vampire, I can say, well, that's a really good villainous plot that the vampiric prince of Detroit has. I think I'm going to steal that and use it for my Savage Worlds game or my Trail of Cthulhu game or whatever it happens to be. Because normally, you know, coming up with a good antagonist plot is a, it, it's a job, it, it's a bit of a job of work for, you know, the GM. That's one of the key things that they have to do. And 
if you can have that part shorthanded and that part uh, highlighted by the uh, scenario designer, a lot of your work is done, even if you're not running that specific scenario. Another technique that you can use to sort of bridge the gap between the two sides of this continuum is to look at the information that, as an adventure writer, you are presenting to the GM and ask yourselves, how is this going to make it to the player interface? For example, if there's a lengthy backstory on a particular NPC, how is this going to come into play? Now, one of the ways it may indeed come into play, as you suggest, is that it is part of the antagonist plot or part of the motivation for the antagonist to be doing what the antagonist is doing. And so that creates the obvious answer that, well, eventually they will talk to the antagonist or someone who has encountered the antagonist before and get that information as a way of understanding what it is that's going on. But very often you will find adventures where there's a lot of information that is presented as sort of basic inspiration where you can see the writer has found an interesting thing that they want to explore, but that that final step of, well, how do you discover this has not been made. Well, that's one of the great things about um, Gumshoe, obviously, is you can you can actually do that. I, I suppose, I don't know if everyone can do it from the jump. I mean, it's the sort of thing that I was starting to do naturally, which I think is one of the reasons I took to Gumshoe as a designer so well. But if you present a information-rich backstory, suddenly, using Gumshoe, it goes from being an annoying piece of novelistic world-building by the designer into raw material for clue finds, because you can go through those and say, all right, that would be knowable with... Uh, art history, or that would be knowable with geology, or that would be knowable with uh, any interpersonal skill from the survivors of that massacre, or whatever else, and you can go through and pick those out. Now, obviously, when we're doing gumshoe adventures, we try to, you know, highlight those possibilities with uh, the names of the skills, you know, bolded and put in parentheses or, or stuck in there at the front of the paragraph, but I think that once you've gotten into that habit of reading for clues you can use that skill even with other uh, game systems that aren't written uh, to be gumshoed and start saying, okay, if this happened logically, who knows about it? How do the player characters find out this awesome backstory that is awesome? I mean, obviously this presupposes it is an awesome backstory that is awesome because if it's lame, you know, don't do that, as uh, the man said. And as a GM, you can also take an adventure that is perhaps written in a way that gives you a lot of cool information but doesn't show you how to get it into the player interface and then find a way to do that, right? So while you're reading, uh, it also helps if you are thinking, you know, even something that's written very much as a piece of closet drama to start breaking it down and stopping and going, well, is this really going to happen? Aren't my players going to do this? And also, this is a really cool bit of information, but I don't see how it's ever going to get to the players. Why don't I, you know, create little notes on a bridging scene in which they will get to the players? So, for example, if you have this cool biographical detail in the backstory of the eccentric gentleman, you can then say, oh, well, you would probably meet the gentleman in a club and you would have to overcome this obstacle to get to him and this obstacle to win his trust. And so if you start thinking of those packages of information that are just presented as sort of prose flights of fancy by the adventure writer and then breaking them down into challenges and you know this is the challenge you have to overcome in order to get this uh, bit of information and this is this obstacle and you can start then building those bridges between the closet drama that you've been given and the 
game that you want to play with your players at the table. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they look at things like that, the, you know, information dumps and exposition, they're seduced by the way that it happens in TV or sometimes in movies where most often the character giving an information dump is one of our main characters. It's someone, you know, if you think of like the X-Files, when uh, Mulder is explaining some ridiculous uh, superstition or UFO theory, he's the one explaining it. He doesn't have to go to a guy and ask him about a ridiculous superstition or UFO theory. He already knows it. And so we are seduced by that kind of storytelling and the thinking that exposition is, is easy to get player buy-in to. It can still be boring or stick out like a sore thumb, as indeed it does in many narratives. But if you look at the, the TV, you think, oh no, the, we can just have that exposition and it will naturally fall into the story without realizing that no, it had to be written into that character's mouth and then spat out at the audience. And so the, the, the notion of who delivers the information, how does that information get, that's, you know, sort of a, a technical question of role-playing in that, you know, a lot of uh, gamers enjoy playing this, the, the, the lore master or the wizard type guy who knows everything, but how does he get the information out of the GM's notes and into his mouth? Is it just a matter of that guy has, has volunteered to do a lot of extra reading and homework, or is there you know, some other methodology by which you can translate that information? And the same thing goes with any other aspect of the storyline, obviously, because you do at some point have to have an NPC who, when beaten, disgorges the plot or when, uh, you know, reassured or whatever. Right, and the first example you mentioned where you've got someone who the, the character is an expert but the player doesn't know the bit of information they need is you can replicate the moment where Mulder tells you all about the 1947 UFO case by, as GM, narrating to that player, well, as you know, in 1947, dot, mm -hmm. dot, dot, and the other players can all hear that and they can all just sort of imagine the character being the one who's telling them instead of the omniscient narrative voice of the GM. And that's a technique that you often don't see outlined in an adventure. And that's the sort of, I think, the nitty gritty of how you get information, not only get information to people, but break it down into little fun-sized bites, because it's much easier to accommodate three or four facts about the 1947 UFO crisis than 16 facts all read to you in a row. And right. so another challenge that you have either as the adventure writer uh, or the GM breaking down someone else's adventure is to how to turn a big chunk of information into little bits of digestible detail that you can sort of discuss and play with and handle and turn around before the next one comes along. The I, I think that might be sort of a, a, a good killer app if you are GMing an adventure and it's one of those adventures that has a lot of backstory or a lot of information in it. Go through and see how much of it your player characters would already know, right? Even if it's supposed to be, quote-unquote, revealed to the, to the players during the course of the adventure... You know, the, the the designer doesn't know your game group. They don't know what what uh, what dwarven lords or uh, Sherlock Holmesian guys they're they're playing. So go through and if they would already know this, you know, occult rumor, give it give them the occult rumor. Give it to them in the previous adventure if you can sneak it in. Uh, if they'd already know this weird fact about geology, you just you know dump it right on the dwarf day one, as opposed to having the dwarf you know have to wait until the proper point in the adventure to to, to pop out that information. I think that that's. Uh, that that can actually really streamline your game experience if you begin with the characters knowing as much as they can instead of 
saying, oh, this is going to be a game in which it's going to be fun for you to be ignorant for the first two hours. And I don't think that that's, even to the extent that is fun, we've pretty much all had that fun now, and maybe it's time to look for other fun. And before we move on, just one last technique that you as a GM can use to turn an adventure that is written a bit too much as closet drama into something useful is that often you will find that in order to make an adventure exciting to read, that the NPCs become grabby and become the protagonists and start doing things that the PCs are watching them do. Now, occasionally, you will still want to do that because certain subgenres require you to have that happen. So, for example, the ticking clock scenario where everybody is locked up in a house and the NPCs are dying one by one, that's the job of the NPCs is to die one by one, and there's a certain extent to which a scripted series of events has to happen, and the PCs need to react to that. But in a lot of other cases, you will find adventures where the NPCs are going out and making things happen, and so as a GM, you can you know, highlight that in whatever color highlighter you use to indicate grabby NPCs, and then step back and ask yourself, well, how could the one of the PCs instead be the one who is impelled into this situation and the NPCs go back to their proper role of commenting on the action and spurring the PCs into doing things rather than having them do things and the PCs acting as their foils, essentially? Well, uh, at the risk of allowing the NPCs to grabbily take over this segment, we should perhaps... Uh, shuffle them off into their own hut and move on ourselves. The fact that we are standing on a giant piece of hex paper and that there's a compass rose over there and a weirdly drawn picture of a sea monster over there indicates that we've once more wandered into the latitudes and longitudes of the cartography hut. And uh, this weekend, I thought we would explore the realm of uh, digital archaeology and particularly uh, digital cemetery mapping. So as I'm sure you know, Ken, the world of archaeology has been transformed by digital information technologies just as everything else has. And digital mapping is now as much or more a tool for archaeologists to figure out their digs than the shovels and picks and brushes of yore. And particularly, I wanted to look at the idea of uh, mapping cemeteries because that suggests all sorts of ways that we can then uh, pilfer this perfectly legitimate field of knowledge for uh, weird tales, either in fictional or gaming format. And so what the archaeologists uh, do when they're using what is called a GIS, or Geographic Information System, I'm not sure how a geographic information system, like a, a map, is also a geographic information system, but that's what they call it. Yep. Um, and so they use GIS to, for example, if you have an Anglo-Saxon burial, the study of what that looks like on the map when you use digital technology to highlight all the different elements and how they interrelate becomes quite different than the process of digging up burial goods and trying to figure out what that says about the culture. Here you can look at the actual physical relationships of the different graves in a cemetery and, for example, discover that there are clusters within a cemetery that suggest that there are groups of people who are connected somehow, either by 
family ties or by occupational ties or, as I think is likely, both. Or you can go to a cave in South America and find that there are, you know, all sorts of bones stacked in this cave. Well, are the bones there by accident? Are they there on purpose? And so some archaeologists will go to the level of analyzing each individual bone and uh, digitally mapping it out in a different color. And from that, they can sort a lot of information that previously would have been much uh, more difficult to see. Or even more recent cemeteries, for example, from the 18th or 19th century, will now hire digital mappers to come in and do a digital survey of who they've got and how they interrelate. And in a way, they are reconstructing historical information that has otherwise been lost. And uh, naturally, this is interesting in and of itself, but also suggests to us a number of possible story hooks. Yeah, I mean, the difference between a map and a GIS, and this is stuff that I learned back in uh, cartography class in uh, undergraduate, back GISs were just being invented, and we sort of dimly saw that they were going to wreck everything we were already learning. Um, <laughs> a map is basically, if you look at it as a, the map is a 2D slice of the of the database, right? So on a map, you can put any sort of information; you just can't put all of it. Whereas on a database, you're mapping a, an Anglo-Saxon burial ground. You can map it not just in geographic location to lines, uh, you know, down to you know GPS coordinates. But you can also say, you know, who was buried there, how many grave goods, how much of those grave goods were silver, you know, what was, what's our dating. And all of those data points can then be put onto a map and compared against each other, or they can be compared purely in mathematics without ever generating a map at all. And you can start doing statistical analysis on those data the same way you can do statistical analysis on, you know, uh, medical records or uh, actuarial records or any other masses of data. And those patterns that pop out, assuming you're doing your statistics right, and this, of course, is the bugbear for all manner of statistical disciplines, not just mapping, will hopefully give you information you didn't have because you, not being a computer, couldn't map all of those numbers against each other. And so you start seeing things like, oh, look, if you map every single one of these graves, there is like a 35-year cluster that people move the, 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 the grave site around. Or there is a, a strong family cluster, and we didn't really realize that everyone who was related by blood to this one king is on this side of the graveyard, and everyone who's related by blood to this one archbishop is on the other side of the graveyard. And so maybe there's a temporal versus secular uh, component to the graveyard that we didn't really understand, or we didn't understand how far it went both in space and time. And that's, I mean, that that... It, it, that's what it, you can do literally that with with every single sort of numeric data and i think that we're still you know maybe we're we're maybe you know out of our our training pants and into our grown up pants but we have not begun to explore uh the possibilities of this correlation of information and we're barely beginning to do it in the physical sciences and as the uh, archaeologist uh, example indicates we're only begin barely beginning to do it in the soft sciences the social sciences now uh, the, the sort of human geography stuff. And we're, you know, just, we're at the stage now where just mapping the, the graveyard is a contribution and actual analysis that could happen a thousand years from now when someone comes back and says, what does, you know, radioactive decay on those sites tell us or whatever. And that's going to be something that pops out. And that's the interesting thing because you can't go back and redig Troy. And admittedly, you can't in many cases because Schliemann or one of his contemporaries act enthusiastically <laughs> blew it up. <laughs> but you have, um, uh, but you have the possibility of going back and redigging those data any time that you uh, have a new theory that you want to test or a new uh, pattern that's developed in every other Mayan graveyard, and you think, oh, is this true in this Olmec graveyard, or is this true in this 
uh, proto-Mayan graveyard, or is this true in the Spanish graveyard? You know, and those are the kinds of interesting questions that you'll never get out of written records because they're not the kind of questions that people ever wrote about. And in many cases, obviously, you know, we don't have written records anymore because uh, paper rots. And so the the serious answer to my flippant question is that yeah. a, a GIS, a geographic information system, isn't a map or a database. It's a map and a database. Right. Yeah. It's the it's the it's, it's a system, if you will, that that combines both of them. But the um, but yeah, the possibilities of digitally mapping graveyards for uh, for for gaming or for weird fiction, obviously, uh, like with any uh, sort of uh, mythos or weird revelation fiction, now you have a new place for a weird revelation to come from. We can have people who start saying that's weird. There's soil subsidence on you know all of these graves all across the Northeast, and why is that the case? And why do all the people with soil subsidence under them? Why do they all have the same last name, or why do they all have the same, you know, uh, family connection, or why were they all buried between 1850 and 1852, or whatever? And those are the sorts of things out of which you can build a, a giant ghoul colony, or evil mind-controlling worms, or whatever it is you want to put underneath the graveyards in your uh, in your scenario. And one of the things about role playing that works better in role playing than it does in cinema are scenes where the characters are sitting at a computer getting information mm -hmm. because to call back to our previous segment you have the equivalent of you know you're an expert in the orcs and so you know this about orcs here you go well as the digital mapper as the uh images fly past you and you notice this uh, strange statistical pattern coming up you realize that there's a big black hole in the middle of the cemetery where there ought to be things uh, buried and they're aren't any and that seems weird to you and you're becoming dizzy and so mm -hmm. unlike a, any movie scene where you see a person looking up stuff on the internet that's that's deadly dull here you can go past the visuals of that to the content of it and so you've uh, immediately got your uh, mystery and the most obvious mystery being you find something in the cemetery that shouldn't be there and then the question becomes do you then set aside your computer and then go to the old-fashioned shovels and go and dig it up. And if you do dig it up, should you have dug it up? And if you decide to do the safe thing and not dig it up, of course, the next morning you get to the site and there's a big hole where Ooh. the thing on your map was. And now you're going to have to use all of the tools at your disposal, including your fancy geographic information system, in order to try and figure out what that was and when it was buried and why before it finishes eating everyone in town. Or your um, uh, kindly old granduncle, who was the guy who set you up in the occult investigating business, dies, uh, taking his secrets to the grave, as they say, except that his grave is going to be right in the middle of that big blank zone. And now it's like, Oh, whatever's down there. I don't think I want it eating Great Uncle's brain and knowing everything about me. That seems like a terrible idea. And then you have an incentive to go out and dig up the um uh the the, the graveyard from from sort of the human side of it as opposed to the supernatural side of it. Uh, I guess another thing that you can do with it, in addition to you know uh the Angelina Jolie scene in Hackers, is you can take this information as an inspiration for the GM as well as something that happens in game. I mean, you can go and you can look at any of these uh, projects. And if you're of a certain cast of mind, you look at something like this cave in Honduras, which has got all the long bones stacked against, you know, one of two walls. And you're like, what's, what's wrong with that big blank wall where there's no long bones stacked. I mean, you're basically as the GM, you're doing, 
the job of that character, finding the blank spot in the data. You know, why, you know, why aren't there any, any, any skulls over there? And maybe, you know, if you went to that cave, you could look at it and say, oh, because it's not flat, and so the skulls would all roll off and make you look like a doofus uh, shaman, and so you don't ever do that. But in a, in a game, you can look at that and say, obviously, because that's the part of the cave that eats the skulls, and now there's some skull-devouring monster, you know, lurking around, and you have a notion like that. You can sort of, rather than use it as the methodology of delivering information to the, to the characters, you use it as the methodology of delivering information to the GM, and the GM can then allude to that without even needing a scene of a heroic scene of men typing, as we call it in my um, uh, in my Knights Black Agents uh, playtest. And it's like, as an archaeologist, you're aware of this weird phenomenon in which many Mayan cave burials left one wall ceremonially blank. And it's like, da-da, and here you go. And you can pretty much deliver anything if you keep a straight enough face. This is the lesson that the History Channel has taught us over and over again, I guess. <laughs> and for a sort of straighter, non-supernatural premise, you could have a scenario hook where uh, you are a member of a team that is hired to do a digital survey of an, er an archaeological site, or maybe even not an archaeological site, but some industrial site or something, and you're just, as far as you know, comp compiling boring engineering data for a boring engineering client, and then once the project is concluded, all the other members of the team, who of course are NPCs, uh, are being murdered by some shadowy force. So the question then becomes, what is it in the information which you weren't supposed to keep a backup copy of, but of course you did, mm -hmm. got all of those other people killed? What is that mystery of that site? And of course, at the same time, the people who want to make sure that nobody correlates all the statistical data in that study are coming after you. So you have the classic, I have to find what's going on before the guys who are trying to cover it up, rub me out scenario comes in, but you've got a new fresh premise for it. Yeah. The, the Hitchcockian, uh, not so much wrong man, but man in the wrong place type thing. If you, um, if you see a lot of noir, uh, you notice not you, Robin, you, the beloved audience, if you see a lot of noir, you notice that a lot of it turns around land, use and land questions, especially in America, which is where noir is born. But you have um, things like the, the water uh, use in Chinatown or the uh, land uh, uh, toxicity records in the underloved FX series Terriers, which I think is still on stream flicks and everyone should go watch if they like noir. And that's the sort of data assembly that happens over the course of the, over, over the course of the movie Chinatown or the course of the show and if you're trying to compress that storyline into one or two game sessions, that uh, GIS gives you a shorthanded way to do that, because a lot of times players don't have the patience to sit through a whole bunch of uh, uh, hilarious shaggy dog uh, private eye adventures in order to get to the noir payoff. They really want to go you know, uh, settle the hash of that mysterious landowner uh, early and often, as opposed to uh, slowly uh, dribbling out data. And the GIS lets you compress that in time as well as compile it in data space or whatever. Right. This land is being stolen. You know that this person has been murdered because of the attempt to steal this land. And in order to find out who might have done it and who might be actually the one behind all the shell companies trying to steal the land, you need to figure out what's interesting about the land that makes someone want to steal it. And it's harder, I think, these days to do a land scam story in uh, North America, although I guess with the uh, collapse of the housing market, you've got vast swaths of territory, so you could have 
you know, a digital survey of a big quasi-abandoned section of Detroit, and that could then lead to uh, your mystery of something that's uh, there that's not supposed to be there. But you could also, you know, move that to uh, the emerging world where there is still plenty of land being stolen even as we speak. <laughs> Every day, yes. Or, um, yeah, and, and again, you can have the data come to you from a satellite. Uh, I know that they use uh, satellite tomography to map archaeological ruins a lot, and you could, for example have satellite data. You've never even gone to the site, but you can upload it from your slightly cinematic satellite and download it in your slightly cinematic computer and run the numbers. And it's like, according to satellite tomography, all of these places have got uh, selenium deposits. And it's like, what's going on with selenium? Why is that important? And then it's either, you know, some sort of cyberpunk uh, evil megacorp that wants to use the selenium to build a super great uh, telepathic cell phone. Or it's some sort of, you know, Azathoth cult that is trying to own all the selenium uh, spots so it can send a pulsed message to its uh, mad idiot lord at the center of the universe and say, come eat us. And in space opera, you can use this as your boring mission that leads you to the more exciting mission that you uncover slowly. So, uh, for example, in Ashen Stars, you can be hired to go and conduct a uh, digital information system study on a uh, planet where there's uh, some interesting natural or archaeological feature. And then once you're there, you can encounter the real interesting uh, mystery, which may uh, not have anything to do with that initial premise that gets you there. But that gives you that classic structure where you first encounter whatever the weird planet mystery of the week is after you arrive and start doing something else as you know you, there's a whole bunch of star trek next gen episodes where you know they're going off and putatively their mission is to repair a satellite or study a stellar anomaly and then they stumble into the actual interesting thing and mm. you can then use <laughs> or don't the... as as it's star trek next generation <laughs> <laughs> right um the, the putatively interesting thing yeah. uh and so you can use that as a sort of fake hook for uh, not only for space opera, but again, anything in, a, in the modern era where you're going off and you want the characters to be in a strange spot of the world. You know, it could be that they go to the tiny village in Scotland and there are supernatural doings on and the locals don't much cotton to the study that they're uh, doing to gather information for this uh, computer project, but the actual weird doings have more to do with the strange wicker figure that they're building in the courtyard <laughs> than actually with the, uh, with the uh, cemetery. <laughs> Although I, I think a lot of times um, player characters, and I think me as a GM, feel a little bit cheated if the data you're gathering turns out to be useless to solving the story. I always like it uh, in, in, in uh, role-playing games, at least. I don't care for it one way or the other in, uh, you know, more conventional adventures. But I like it when the ostensible mission and the real story hook up somehow. That, you know, you're, you know, for, for example, when you're going off to investigate uh, the alien ruin, I like it if the thing that attacks you in the alien ruin is somehow connected to the alien ruin as opposed to, oh, there's Klingons, you know, also on the planet mining, you know, selenium somewhere. And they just happen to be there. And so do you. Uh, wild coincidence. I, I prefer it if, you know, as, when you're in Scotland uh, mapping the, the mortuary sites, you're like, wow, it's weird that no one with the last name of everyone I'm meeting in this village is buried. And they're all not buried. And all the names in the graveyard don't match any of the names in the village. 
that's strange. And you then you are realize, oh, they're immortal druids, and that's why they're going to burn us alive. I get it. And then put us in the graveyard. I see where this is going. Right. The, the way to make that other technique work is to make sure that you don't put very much weight on it. Right. Yeah, that it's right. basically, you're on the planet discover, mm-hmm. uh, doing a routine survey when dot, dot, dot. So While that the players, donuts, you. Yes. So, <laughs> so the players do not get emotionally invested in that other mystery. But of course, if you extemporize and the thing that you've laid out there as the fake hook becomes extremely fascinating to them, you can just listen to the theories that they float that connect it to what's going on and, and pick the, and use the, uh, best one. The, the best or most surprising one. And uh, of course, that's as, as classic a GMing technique as you get. Yeah. And I think that as we're moving into classic GMing techniques, we are perhaps reaching the edge of the map where dragons and other huts be. Again, to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Tom Clare asks Ken and Robin, what do you think about the use of an in-world narrative voice when writing rules and background for gaming books, as in Deadlands or the Serenity RPG? Robin, what do you think about the use of an in-world narrative voice when writing rules and background for gaming books? I think that uh, with rules in particular, it's something that you can use to spice up the text if you realize that this is a very powerful spice uh <laughs> you know it's the it's the coriander of uh, rules prose shticks as it were and you want to do it very lightly so for example the, the dying earth role playing game does have little asides that are written in that sort of witty vancian manner but as we went on and other people started writing dying earth stuff we had to ask people to pull back on that a bit mm-hmm. that the you have to make sure, first of all, that the joke isn't just that the person who's writing is prolix, because even if you're writing prolix dialogue as a joke, it's still prolix. Mm-hmm. Um, but the just a little of that goes a long way. So every so often, a little joke or aside to sort of liven up the process, particularly of learning the rules, because that's, um, and this is another dichotomy that we've talked a bit about in the past, which is the divergence between learning a rule set in the first place and referring to it afterwards. And one of the reasons you want to do this very sparingly is that it is useful as a sort of a mental jolt or a wake-up call when you are first learning the rules. It sort of breaks up the process of learning and breaks up what could otherwise be fairly dry text. But on the other hand, you don't want to, when you're looking up how the uh, flanking rules work, you don't want to find a lengthy disquisition in fake old prospector talk. You just want to find out how the rule works. Yeah. You don't much care how um, uh, Walter Brennan thinks that the uh, <laughs> that the stacking rules work. Why, consign you, if you go next to the opposite hex, why, you'd just be like a ferret in heat. Um, that's not going to help. <laughs> or, you know, it may help if it causes you to stop worrying about flanking bonuses. But, yeah, I, I think that I'm, I'm basically with you on it. I maybe even have a, a lower tolerance for the for the in-world narrative voice asafetida than you do, um, which I guess can be told by the fact that you thought it was coriander and I think it's asafetida, but, um, or asafetida, whichever it is. Um, the, 
the thing about it is that I find it so much more productive as a writer to aim for tone as opposed to little vocal tricks, right? So when I was writing Night's Black Agents, I was always trying to write it in a tone that conveyed, this is a thriller, this is a thriller, this is a born movie, this is what's going on, this is Taken, this is Ronin, this is a thriller, and everything was sort of written leaning forward, all the examples were aimed at that kind of action, the the, the, the sort of the assumptions that I made about the, the players were aimed at that, and then just the tone of the language I tried to keep on that sort of thriller uh, voice as opposed to in a more sort of standard uh, technical writing tone that you would find in uh, a, a, a standard, uh, well, not a standard role-playing game, because God knows that D&D games were written in a, in a, in a voice that, similarly, I think, uh, Guidejacks aimed for a tone when he was writing the, the, GM's, uh, the DM's Guide and writing the Player's Handbook, and that tone set the, the, the flavor of the world even before the rules did and even before... Uh, you you know drew up your first dungeon or built your your vampires in your conspiracy, and I think if you can handle tone, writing in voice actually is a distraction because you have to keep dropping in and out of it and saying, well, do I put an asterisk? Or do I you know uh, leave the G off the off the fighting at this point? Do I you know at at this point do I have to you know say consarnet a couple of times? I I find it to be very you know it, it, too much of a good thing or too much even of a not particularly good thing in those kind of contexts. Now, in sort setting books, you can write it in a voice, and I find it to be annoying as a GM only if I'm coming at it from the assumption of someone who isn't the guy writing the book, right? If I'm reading a Shadowrun book, and it's written from the perspective of one of the runners, and I'm thinking, because I'm the GM, no, I'm Mr. Johnson. I don't want to know what the runners think about this world. I want to know what Mr. Johnson knows about the world, because that's who I have to play as the GM. And I find that that can cause uh, assumption clash and setting clash and get in my way as a user. Another challenge of this is that, uh, frankly, writing invoice is easier to word spin. Mm -hmm. That you can, as a writer is paid by the word, you can get up a good head of steam uh, writing a bunch of setting stuff that, or uh, rather voice stuff, that doesn't actually convey any information beyond the voice itself. Mm -hmm. So while it, it can be for some people who like that style easier to read, it's also easier to write. But if it is too easy to write, chances are it's fat mm -hmm. and that there's a, a lot of that that can be cut out. And that's why I think that the suggestion you're making of there are other ways to convey the flavor of a setting without actually having a character talking to you about the flanking rules is very strong. So, for example, in Knight's Black Agents, your sentence length is shorter than your equivalent uh, gumshoe game. And my normal sentence length. Go ahead, just say it. In, uh, in Trail of Cthulhu. <laughs> and, uh, but in Trail of Cthulhu, although there are little bits where you want to go, that's a you know, bit too much into the Lovecraftian sentence construction and add a few periods, that in general, uh, you know, that that fits the flavor of Trail of Cthulhu and the flavor of Lovecraft without ever having the conceit that it's Lovecraft himself telling you how the sources of stability work, for example. <clears throat> yeah. And so it's it's a it's a subtler form of writing and it's one that also requires you to be more disciplined. And uh, so again, I think that we're both kind of saying uh, me a bit more forgivingly than you are that the it depends like most techniques on how well it is done, but that this is a technique that 
holds a number of temptations to do it badly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that that's that's the case of a lot of things that you know we look at the at the good payoff and we forget the you know chasm beneath the guy who made it across the uh, across on the tightrope is littered with the bodies of people who tried, and that you know that's what I call the Daniel Burnham principle. Just because Daniel Burnham could uh, do urban planning doesn't mean anyone else can. So stop it. Right, or perhaps for a, a more nerdly analogy, I really like me a good lens flare when mm-hmm. it's a natural and. Uh, sparing, but when you have so many lens flares in an image that you laugh at the number of lens flares, as you do in certain shots in the J.J. Abrams uh, Trek movies, that this is a technique that is calling attention to itself as a technique and distracting you from what it is that you're supposed to be engaged with, so that if you read the Walter Brennan voice flanking rules and remember the Walter Walter Brennan voice, but don't remember what bonus you get, Mm -hmm. that this is a case of that the technique has taken over and is no longer supporting your objective, but instead has become an objective unto itself and has shunted aside the actual purpose of that paragraph. Yeah. And again, I think that um, uh, you can forgive more of it in setting material and background material and things like that than you can in rules. I think that that's uh, in terms of general things that I would say about it, I would say that if I'm reading a, a Deadlands setting book and it's in old prospector voice, that can be fun and doesn't get in my way unless I'm trying to read it from the perspective of someone who's not the old prospector guy. And again, I think a lot of people, because they think that the players will be reading this book, will be thinking, well, I should write it in a voice that is a player voice and forgetting that its actual intended utility in many cases is for the GM or at any rate, the GM is going to decide whether it shows up in the game or not. And so the player can buy the book all day and read it. And if the GM says, I'm sorry, I couldn't get my head through the, um, uh, the, the, the Shadowrunner voice or the Walter Brennan voice, I'm not going to nonsense. I'm going to, not going to bother with this. I'm just going to repurpose this old Boot Hill scenario. Um, then that's what's going to happen. And I think that, uh, I guess game, uh, writers need to keep in mind not just who they would like to buy the book, but who is the person who's actually going to bring it to the table. And if you're writing, you know, a splat book for the Tremere, yeah, go ahead and write it in as Tremere of voice as you want, because the Malkavian isn't going to read it necessarily. But I think that you still have to make sure that the GM can reach in and pull out the things that the GM is going to want. And the GM is not, by definition, going to be in the world of the players. The GM is going to be either a neutral uh, Corbusierian architect or the GM is going to be someone who is trying to look at the world from the perspective of usually the villains or the bad guys or some other uh, faction that doesn't uh, that isn't quite so colorfully uh, useless. One advantage of this technique in setting material, though, is that it frees the writer of the trap of the omniscient voice, where mm-hmm. if you are describing a setting but still want to indicate to the GM and players that there is a freedom of exception you can get into that alternate trap if you're writing it in an objective tone of explaining how the general tendency is in this world, right? That all of the members of the Imperial Navy are honest, except, of course, for the small number of rogues and renegades. And so uh, you can often run into pieces of objectively written setting text that are so full of exceptions in order to continually underline the fact that there are exceptions to every rule and that you can always have freedom to add this plot element, that it becomes mushy. Or that we can end up with things like mostly and usually and 
almost all the time or whatever. Right. So all of those weasel words, you no longer have to use those if you're writing from the point of view of the admiral of the Imperial Navy, he can just say, uh, all of uh, my men are uh, known for their honesty, and you can write it in such a way that you can then indicate that, oh, well, this guy is biased, and that you as a reader, whether the GM or the player, can then take into account that the fact that you're getting one character's point of view, which you can largely rely upon once you account for biases, which uh, is a skill that anyone who reads a newspaper hopefully has. Or a history um, book. That then, yeah, that then that gets you out of that necessity of deploying a weasel clause uh, every three sentences. Okay. I think as we move into how to write good, we move out of Ask Ken and Robin. So the whirring of chronotons and the clanking of time gears indicates that once more we're standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the transportation vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back in time to adjust, manipulate, and occasionally turn upside down the historical record. And in this case, Ken, they uh, want you to look into what, to me anyway, was a little-known incident in so far as I didn't know about it until I read your book on the Nazi cult, which is that... Uh, <laughs> well, that's, I think, the very definition of a little-known event. Yes. So uh, I did not realize that there was an incident where uh, Mussolini was actually arrested and uh, jailed uh, and then freed by his Nazi compatriots uh, in order, surely, to um, meet his entirely uh, appropriate fate that he finally did wind up. So Time Incorporated is not 100% sure that they want to pull the lever on this one, but they do want you to investigate the possibilities of uh, what might happen if you thwart that raid. So perhaps you could lay out, first of all, the way that it actually happened in history as we know it. Okay. In history, um, the Allies invade Sicily. They're bombing Rome. They um, are either preparing to or have just about landed on the uh, boot of the Italian heel there, or the toe, and are, you know, getting ready to, to march up Italy. And, and when and is this? This is uh, summer of 1943. Uh, and so the, the Allies are, are doing this, and the Italian government, as Italian governments do, is having second thoughts about uh, what's been going on. And the king, who has been left in power by, or not in power, left in place by Benito Mussolini, is urged by the, um, uh, basically by the I Italian army, which doesn't want to have to fight grown-ups, urges the king to replace Mussolini, and uh, they will arrest him and, and put him in prison, and then Italy can surrender to the Allies, and no harm, no foul, just like in World War I, where they um, uh, sort of came out on the, side of, uh, uh, on the side of good, even though they spent the first two years of the war sitting it out. And so they, uh, the Italian army basically arrests Mussolini. They stick him on an island in, uh, the, Medi in the, the Mediterranean Sea, the island of Panza. And they think, there you go, that problem is solved. But Hitler, and I think that this is something that people don't recognize, because we look back on the war and we say, Hitler is the, um, uh, is the supervillain. Mussolini is the sidekick. He's the hilarious comic relief. He's the fat, goofy one. But 
Hitler, of course, grew up looking up to Mussolini, and he looked up to Mussolini and saw Mussolini as sort of the guy who did what Hitler wanted to do, and he was the first, you know, guy who really wore a snappy black uniform and marched into a capital and made everyone listen to him and changed the face of art and did all that stuff that Hitler wanted to do. And so Hitler always looked up to Mussolini. I think that by 1943, Hitler was a little tired of Mussolini, but there was still that reservoir of respect and, and admiration underlying, you know, what Hitler called friendship uh, for, for Mussolini. And so he wanted very much to rescue Mussolini. And the theory was that we would rescue Mussolini. We, the Germans, would rescue Mussolini, put him back in power into, in some part of Italy that uh, the German army con- already controlled, which was by that time most of it. And he would, you know, everything would go back to the way it was. The Italian army would... Um, uh, uh, rise as one to support their uh, restored duce, and they'd throw the Americans back into the sea. So the Italian government similarly suspected that that might happen, and so they kept sort of playing shell games with Mussolini and moving him from island to island, and the Nazis are trying and trying and trying to find him. They're flying search missions looking for him. They've got their spies out in Italy asking about um, uh, double rations of fettuccine being sent to uh, remote <laughs> islands and whatnot. And so... Uh, in actuality, uh, our old buddy, Otto Skorzeny, SS uh, Wunderkind, flies a surveillance mission over uh, an island in off the coast of uh, Sardinia and discovers that, uh, sure enough, there is uh, activity on the ground there consonant with having a high-level uh, prisoner in the spot. And so he immediately gets shot down by British uh, Air Force, who are flying around in that area, and his boat ditches, his plane ditches in the Mediterranean. He's picked up by the Italian Navy, hilariously, who are the Navy guarding um, uh, Mussolini, and instead of you know, putting him back in the Mediterranean, which is what you might have done if you were uh, decisive people, they send him back to Rome uh, in dry pants and an apology, and he then calls Hitler and says he's being held in La Maddalena, which is an island off Sardinia. And Hitler says, go, you have authority to to, to rescue him. And so uh, Skorzeny uh, starts setting up the plan to basically take a bunch of Navy commandos and uh, rescue uh, Mussolini off this island of Maddalena and obviously have enough SS guys that it can be an SS mission. But in the interim, the the Italians, not being complete idiots, have realized that Otto Scorzani bobbing like a cork off your secret prison is a bad sign, have moved him <laughs> again, and it is through a brilliant piece of last-minute police work and a couple of uh, lucky intercepts of Italian radio signals that caused an entirely different batch, the Obwehr, the military intelligence, to figure out that, no, uh, he's being kept in a uh, basically a ski resort uh, Campo Imperatore up in the Apennine Mountains, and the hotel has no airfield. It has no roads leading to it, really. There's only a cable car. It's the only way you can get to this hotel, and the theory is we put him there with 200 carabinieri, the Italian uh, Alpine troops, who are sort of their, their elite uh, mountain forces. Uh, we'll put him in there, and n- the Germans can't get him, and the problem will be solved, as opposed to an island, because the Italians were, you know, suddenly realizing, yeah, yeah, the Germans can work boats. That's still in their uh, skill set. And uh, it's at this point that uh, Karl Student, who's the guy who's been trying to get glider troops and parachute troops approved for use as part of the order of battle of the Wehrmacht over and over and over, or the Luftwaffe over and over and over again, says, well, we can get him with gliders. We can go in with gliders and snatch him off Campo Imperatore. 
And once Skorzeny's uh, SS bosses hear that the uh, glory of this might go to the Luftwaffe, they immediately horn in and have Skorzeny reinserted into the plan. So they send a bunch of gliders off to uh, Campo Imperatore. The gliders, of course, being gliders, crash and land in the wrong direction, meaning that by sheer luck, Skorzeny's glider is the one that lands basically right in front of the hotel. So Skorzeny jumps out of the glider, runs into the, uh, the sort of the guardhouse of the hotel, um, smashes the radio with the butt of his rifle, and, uh, <laughs> and basically says, you know, we're the Nazis, we're here to take Mussolini, and the Carabinieri say, okay, no mas. And he goes into the hotel, and after a delay that is probably caused by him getting tangled up in barbed wire or fighting a guard dog, emerges with Mussolini saying, you know, my friend, your, your friend Hitler has sent me, and Mussolini's like, I knew I wouldn't be abandoned, and they, they you know, hug and kiss and fly off into the, the sunset. Music swells on the soundtrack. Music swells. It's a, it's a beautiful, um, uh, it, it's a beautiful uh, moment in the fascism. <laughs> and that is the story of the Grand Sasso Raid. So, uh, as you look at this story, what would be the possible benefits of interfering with the Grand Sasso Raid? Well, um, the <laughs> the thing that perhaps had escaped Hitler is that Mussolini was useless. And when Mussolini gets to uh, Germany, uh, finally, after a number of hilarious misadventures in aircraft, he gets off the plane and he's a shambling wreck, you know, having been arrested by your own army and tossed in a series of islands and hotels will do that to you. He had lost a lot of weight. He was listless and his, you know, his, his pelt was, was dull and had no sheen. And Hitler, um, did not <laughs> suddenly began to realize the, the fundamental flaw in this is even if you rescue Mussolini, you still have Mussolini. And so, uh, the, uh, the effect was that they put him in charge of what they called the Italian Social Republic, which was based in uh, Salo, which was in northern Italy, where the German army uh, basically had moved into occupation. And Mussolini eventually raised, I think, four or five divisions of uh, Social Republic troops for, uh, the, for the war effort, but they were not particularly ever used in, in frontline combat because the reliability of Italian troops had finally been born in, if not on Hitler, on Kesselring, whose job it was to defend Italy. And so they were mostly used in rear area occupation of the Social Republic. The only real effect of it in terms of the war was that because Mussolini was now a completely a creature of Hitler and under the control of the Germans, he had to round up all the Jews in northern Italy and send them to camps, which before, when he was, you know, running his own country, and Hitler would say, hey, you know what would be awesome is if you round up all the Jews and send them to camps, and Mussolini would like, um, fighting a war here, busy, don't have time for that. So that's really the only practical effect of the Grand Sasso raid is that you get the Italian Jew, uh, Italian Jewish population is, uh, you know, sent into the Holocaust in the way that they had not been up until 1944. Well, Time Incorporated now requires no more uh, justification of this mission. So with so many potential misadventure points to interfere with, it seems like you have an embarrassment of choices in terms of blandishing the timeline and seeing to it that Mussolini doesn't get put back in power in order to send Italian Jews off to the Holocaust. So which one do you pick? Well, if I'm going to make the mission go wrong, I think that there can't be anything more fun than sabotaging the little tiny plane, the Fiesler uh, Storch, that is the uh, STOL, uh, short takeoff and landing plane, that is used to fly uh, Mussolini back from Campo Imperatore. Uh, in the real world, in the Alpha timeline, 
the um uh the Storch was uh piloted by a German pilot and it was supposed to have Mussolini on it, and they had the wait figured out for the pilot and Mussolini to get back to Rome from Campo Imperatore, where they had a you know, Luftwaffe detachment that was around a bomber that was gonna fly him back. So Scorzani, no idiot, or <laughs> a giant idiot, you pick says, no, 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 no one's going to take Mussolini back unless I'm in the camera shot. And he insists on climbing into the Storch, despite the fact that it's horribly overweight now, because he was a big guy. I mean, he was like six foot something and, you know, a healthy eater, because he was Austrian. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and I mean, obviously he was in decent shape, but he was, he was, uh, he was a big guy. He knew so his way around climbed- the Exactly. He knew his way around the schnitzel. So he climbs into the, into the Storch, and sure enough, it almost, you know, it, it, uh, the, 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 the pilot manages by doing a running takeoff that basically counts on him being able to pull up from the bottom of the cliff at the bottom of uh, Campo Imperatore and use that as fundamentally aerial runway, that that's the plan. So they, they, you know, they go over the edge of the cliff, they arrow down into the chasm, and because of the um, uh, airspeed the, and the pilot skill, he's able to pull the storch out and they just clear the, the next mountain over, and they're off to Rome. And I think that the simplest and most fun thing to do is to sabotage the Storch, so that uh, when it goes over the side of the cliff, it just keeps going down and explodes in a cinematic ball of orange gasoline, taking Mussolini and Scorzani and uh, the, well, not innocent, but relatively compared to Scorzani and Mussolini innocent, uh, Captain Gerlach, uh, with it to the uh, rocky bottom of the Apennines. And what that does, first of all, is it takes Mussolini out, it, not not as uh, uh, satisfyingly, perhaps, as being strung up from a meat hook and beaten by peasants, which is certainly the way that all dictators should perish. But it also takes out Scorzani, and that means that Scorzani's, uh, first of all, Scorzani's sort of legend never gets started. And so you never have this notion of this dashing SS commando, which can't... Uh, help but improve uh, the uh, situation for pop culture in the post-war world, even if it makes it slightly more boring. That, that first adjective should never go with the second adjective. It, yes, and yet it does. And um, the other thing is that Scorzani turns out to have been relatively important in Operation Valkyrie, uh, the uh, Stauffenberg coup, uh, when he takes command of the forces in Berlin and says, no, 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 I don't think the, that Hitler is dead working on the theory that if Hitler is dead, Scorzani is dead, so we might as well play the other card. And he is probably not solely, but is certainly uh, somewhat responsible for the fact that the German army in Berlin didn't go over completely to the Stauffenberg uh, conspirators in 1944, because obviously, even if Hitler does, doesn't die in the explosion, there's a possibility that you know he emerges from the bunker, is shot by some guy that Stauffenberg or the army has placed there and is then taken back to die in the explosion. And if Scorzani is not there, there is at least a better chance that the army does what's right and uh, goes along with the Stauffenberg coup and you end World War II, you know, like a year early, which is certainly um, uh, a consummation devoutly to be wished. That would certainly compensate for the uh, loss of the poetic ending of Mussolini, especially since, you know, I... A ball of ex- orange explosion is in its own way poetic. Yeah, and certainly if you're not going to hang a dictator up from a meat hook and beat him by peasants, uh, having him explode in a ball of cinematic orange gasoline is the other way to do it. But um, the trouble with that sort of uh, with, with those options is you're not certain. It's not certain that Scorzani was the you know indispensable man 
on the scene during the Stauffenberg coup, and it's absolutely certain that if Mussolini had exploded in a ball of olive oil and gasoline fire, that Hitler would have said, okay, who's the next highest-ranking fascist we can find? Because the Germans were still going to take over Italy. That was probably a fait accompli with or without Mussolini, and it was certainly going, they would certainly have taken over the northern half of Italy, which was the half with all the factories and useful part. And the, the, there was no force in the world that was going to stop the Germans from taking that. So the chance of a uh, happy ending for Italy's Jews is still not assured by aborting the Grand Sasso raid. It's still, you know, it's still worth doing. And if the uh, Time Incorporated wants to keep budgeting, you know, balls of orange flame for various fascist leaders, that could be amusing in and of itself. But I think that in terms of larger geopolitical questions, Time Incorporated may have been suffering from the same delusion that Churchill was when he thought that invading Italy was a good idea. So this is, at best, a bank shot. Yeah, I, th I think it's best. It, it's a bank shot. It's certainly one worth doing, because it is fun to have um, uh, the career of uh, the most dangerous man in Europe end with uh, ignoring air airplane safety rules. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, it, it, I, sh I should point out during this that one of the important briefing documents for this mission is a book uh, in the Osprey Raid series uh, called Rescuing Mussolini by Robert Forchick, and he has a um, uh, a two-page spread that just basically eviscerates the legend of Scorzani. It's called Otto Scorzani Rear Area Commando, and it is well worth reading uh, <laughs> if you are one of the people who feels that Scorzani gets a little too much credit and certainly way too much um, uh, uh, love from the... Uh, from the East Front enthusiasts, and I'm I'm as guilty as anyone of amplifying the legend of Scorzani just because, as a game master, you want to have Otto Scorzani running around. But I think, as a historian, it is incumbent on everyone to recognize that once more you've been done rooked by uh, Goebbels and uh, have not perhaps been reading the uh, the source documentation as closely as you might. Uh, well, I think you've uh, made a, a good case for uh, this uh, mission, even if it is a bank shot. So uh, I will stand aside while you uh, rev up the time machine. And I guess we've uh, completed yet another podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this golem off going by clicking the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Downcast, or your podcast app of choice. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.